Our first scripture today is from Proverbs 37 through 9. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far away from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. James 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, though China boasted the world's largest economy until the middle of the 18th, oh, 19th century, or middle 1800s, it faced a series of significant pressures. One was the rapid industrialization of the, you know, the world around them and the wealth accumulation that came along with that. And secondly, there was this external pressure from the West exerted through uh, uh, trade pacts and through uh, the, the Western colonialism that came along with op the Opium Wars 
and the perceived partnership of those things together with Christian missionary activity in China. And third, internally, there were uh, centuries of decline under weak leadership, which led to regional warlords and extreme poverty for much of its people. By the turn of the 20th century, the ineffective rule of China's last emperor moved a number of citizens to, to action against this ineffective monarchy who lived such an extreme opulent lifestyle in contrast to the lives of most of its citizens. And one of those men who uh, was moved to action was a gifted writer and an intellectual named Zhu Jixin. He was a close colleague of the revolutionary Sun Yat-sen, I think is the picture somewhere on here. He looked abroad for wisdom on how to improve the state of his nation, so he turned to the writings of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Zhu was the first to translate their work into Chinese and introduce those ideas to China. Zhu was so moved by apparent injustice against his people, he believed that a complete reset of society was needed. And for him and those who followed in his footsteps, the ideals of communism and of atheism would be the answer to this inequity and injustice that he observed in his homeland. Now, most of you, most people would not recognize the name Zhu Jixin. In fact, the only reason I know about him is that he is my great-grandfather. And so here's a picture of Ashley and Evan at uh, our family's visit to his memorial, located on the grounds of a very prestigious school in Guangzhou, China. While I might disagree, uh, he and I might disagree on how to solve economic injustice, I've been inspired by his concern for the flourishing of his homeland. You know, today, as we continue this series on just relationships in a just world, we're going to look at what economic justice might look like in the major economic systems of our world today and what scripture might have to say about them. In light of Jesus and of God's kingdom, how might we as God's people advocate for an economy of what I call thoughtful love, an economy of thoughtful love? Okay, I'm going to attempt to speak about all these big things in the next 20 minutes. So, so uh, here we go. The question, num number one, the question, is there a biblical economy? Secondly, the problem of thoughtless guilt. And the third, the hope of thoughtful love. The question, the problem, the hope. Now, America prides itself in being the leader of the free world. People from all over the world come to America to participate in the free market economy in hopes of achieving the American dream. And for the most part, that expectation is justified. America still is the largest economy in the world, especially since World War I. But, as many have pointed out and we've been learning over the past few weeks, America also leads in a number of other indices, like COVID deaths. It leads the world in mass incarceration. It leads the world in gun ownership and mass shootings, as the recent weeks have reminded us. America leads the world in reliance on painkillers. Did you know that America consumes 80% of the world's opioids? It also surprised me to learn that America does not lead the world in free market capitalism. In fact, it doesn't even break the top 10, according to statistics from 2021. So here's a quick macroeconomics course based on what I can know. So feel free if you know, you can correct me. Okay. Our modern economies are fall within the spectrum of capitalism, socialism, and communism. These were all defined in the 19th century, so you won't find those terms in the Bible, of course. They were developed in response to this rapid industrialization of the world. Capitalism focuses on private ownership of the means of production and allowing the laws of supply and demand, you know, 
Adam Smith introduced these ideas to determine pricing and the distribution of goods. There's a direct relationship between those who produce the goods and those who buy the goods, and that's what determines pricing, not the government or not some institution. So private owners benefit from all the profits, but they also take all the risks and take all the losses if their businesses don't succeed. Socialism was developed in response to capitalism to say like there are some private ownership of goods, but there's also some public ownership of goods that were meant to be managed by the government or the state for the benefit of all. And then you have communism, which takes these communal benefits of socialism and adds but takes away the private ownership of goods and private distribution of goods, and that puts that in the hands of the state or the government. Now, just so you know, no modern national economy is purely capitalist or purely socialist or purely communist. Even America is not purely capitalist. We regulate many parts of our economy, and the government manages and, and, uh, social goods like health care, education, transportation, and things like libraries. The government also subsidizes industries and provides bailouts and emergency assistance whenever it's required. So when it comes to the Christian faith, we can find some support in scripture for these various economic systems in scripture. So Americans and capitalists will often turn to verses like Proverbs 13:4, which says, a sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Capitalists like were, uh, verses like that, that emphasize the rewards of hard work and personal responsibility. And then we heard Roz read per, uh, Matthew 25 that emphasize making the most of what has been entrusted to you. Don't we all aspire to be like those first two servants who get two bags of gold and turn it into four bags and five bags of gold and turn it into ten bags? We don't want to be like that last servant, right? Who hides their stuff in the ground and does nothing with what has been entrusted to them. So those of us, uh, we, that's just wasting, wasting resources, wasting what God has given to you. And so we snub our noses down at people who put all their money into a savings account at 0.5% rather than into markets or starting businesses with it. And even more, we shake our fist at anyone who and especially the government who would attempt to limit us for making more than we can possibly make through regulations and rules. Now, those of us who are more socially or communally inclined find support for socialism and communism in verses like Acts chapter 2, which says, All the believers were together and every, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You know, led us in a call to worship based on this text. There's communal sharing and resources for the benefit of those who most needed it. In the Old Testament, we hear this vision of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25 that seems to suggest that private ownership of property is never meant to be permanent. It's something that aligns with communist ideals. And even more, we find in uh, Christian asceticism in, seen in the lifestyle choices of communities like the Hutterites or the Amish or the tradition that our church affiliates with the Mennonites. Like monastic traditions in the past throughout Christian history, they draw interpretation of the beatitude, draw inspiration from the beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew 5 to live as this alternative community in the world. They take verses like Luke chapter 12 
15 verse very seriously where it says then he said to them jesus says to them watch out be on your guard against all kinds of greed life does not consist in the abundance of possessions so live a life of simplicity so as you can see there is no modern economy that is more biblically sanctioned than one than another all can be traced to a biblical ethic in all but also all have deficiencies and their temptations. So as, this, as the world, and specifically America, became richer, especially after World War II, there has, been, there has been an uncomfortable problem of how do we respond to wealth and poverty and inequity. During the 60s, Christians began an, um, articulating theologies of wealth, and poverty to make sense of what scriptures had to say about this topic. So the Catholic Church published their theological reflections in Vatican II. We also saw the rise of liberation theology in works like the writings of Peruvian philosopher Gustavo Gutierrez, where he expressed a conviction that change in light of extreme injustice, especially in the area of poverty, must be experienced now in this life. Then you have people like Ron Sider, whose influential work, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, led to the founding of an organization now called Christians for Social Action. It's a group that our WCF member, Alyssa Sickle, works for, and whose executive director, Nikki Toyamasito, has come to speak here at WCF before. The 60s also brought rise to, this prosperity, to the prosperity gospel, also known as the Name It and Claim It gospel where the relationship between faith which articulates a relationship between faith and wealth it said if you only believe god enough and you give enough to the church then god is going to bless you materially god will ensure your material prosperity we also saw anabaptist or mennonite voices advocating a countercultural community informed by faithful stewardship informed by to care for the poor and sharing for the sake of the wider community. You know, WCF is connected to those values through our affiliation with the Mennonite denomination and through our friends at Sojourners, whose office is just a few blocks west of us here. And one of our community members, Elizabeth Denlinger Reeves, works at. You know, with the rise of capitalism and a predominantly Judeo Christian, in the Judeo Christian nations, and the fall of Cold War communism, it seems that capitalism is the dominant economic system in our world. But it is not perfect. As wealthy as America has become, the gap between the wealthy and the poor, domestically and abroad, is widening. And as wealthy as America is, we are last amongst the top 18 nations in giving foreign aid as a percentage of our GDP. So perhaps our confidence as a Christian nation, quote, and as a nation of free market capitalism requires a bit more humility and a bit more honesty. Our supposedly free market is not so free when industry lobby groups have the ears of politicians and provide bailouts to favor them at the expense of America as a whole. Now, I know some of us might work for industry groups or contractors for them, so I'm going to pick one that I think is pretty safe in a Mennonite church. The gun lobby. The gun lobby is one egregious and downright evil example of this. Take this tweet from the gun manufacturer that uses scripture 
to accompany a toddler holding an AR-15 style gun. We should be incredibly cautious about presuming how our wealth and success and capitalism intersect with our professed faith in God. Now, some Jesus followers insist that wealth is a reflection of God's blessing on you. And while others insist that poverty is a sign of God's blessing on you. But take a look at what Rod's read for us earlier in Proverbs. We see that neither wealth nor poverty are necessarily signs of being more blessed by God. Throughout the Old Testament, there is no automatic support for one economic or liberation analysis of poverty. Neither amassing riches or getting rid of them is automatically good or bad. We can find support for hard work that capitalism values, but the poor are by no means automatically lazy. The relative equality promoted by socialism appears too in Scripture, but that equality or sharing comes through individual or family or community relationships and ties to property rather than through state or government control. We also find echoes of prophetic denunciation towards social injustice, central to liberation theology, permeating all of the Old Testament. But not once do we find a call for violent resistance or overthrowing Israel's oppressors merely on those grounds. Capitalists hold up their values of hard work and growth of wealth to guilt others who do not appear to be working hard enough. Without recognizing that the unequal starting points and abilities and obstacles that many people face. Socialists hold up their value of communal concern to guilt those who do not seem to be generous enough with what they have. Liberationists uphold their value of overthrowing any perceived injustice in this life by presuming guilt on anyone who holds uh, cultural or material power. The focus of all these isms on others is on what others are not doing good enough. Whether it's hard work to grow wealth or whether it's sharing your wealth for the poor or whether it's requiring oppressive structures to be overthrown in this life. None of those are automatic evidence of God's blessing. You see, in the Old Testament for Israel, the promise of blessing and material blessing is tied to obedience to the covenant. Living in right relationship with the living God. Material blessings were tied to their altar sacrifices. But on this side of the cross, Jesus has fulfilled all the demands of the covenant. And so wealth as a sign of God's blessing and a sign of, as a reward for your, for, for your labor that is found in the Old Testament are two strands that don't appear to continue into the New Testament in life described there. In the Old Testament, the material blessing for Israel in its land and the bounty of its land was never an ends in itself. That material blessing was always viewed with sharing and generosity in mind. God's promise of abundance of blessings and material blessings to Israel was meant so that it could be shared with the nations and with those in need. Theologian Walter Brueggemann describes this posture in Scripture towards wealth as one of respect and resistance. So, 
How do Jesus' followers demonstrate respect and restraint towards wealth? It's not by thoughtless guilting and shaming others for their lack of hard work and determination or for their lack of generosity or for holding some degree of privilege and power. Perhaps our relationship with the economic systems can be expressed in this, what, I, what I call the hope of thoughtful love. Roz read for us in James chapter 5 how the writer has harsh words to say about the rich. And here it may be easy to presume that James is condemning anyone who is rich. But in light of who he is writing to in the entire letter and the, and the suffering they face, the rich here are to be wealth, are, are appear to be wealthy non-Christians who are oppressing the Christian community that James is writing to through unfair wages and through extravagant selfish consumption. The way they use their riches shows little regard for those who are innocent and those who have the least. When he says, you have condemned, in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. The wealthy have not shown concern, let alone love, for, Je- for Jesus' followers that James writes to. So, how does, Jesus, uh, how does James encourage the church to respond to this injustice and oppression. If you read further in that letter, James doesn't rally them to overthrow oppressive systems. Instead, he calls them to patience and hopeful trust, recognizing that God alone is the one just judge who will set things right. He calls for respect and restraint in how we might complain against one another or in naming our oppressors. Their response seems to be rather un-American, where we are all too ready to raise our middle finger against anyone in defiance. But it is one way of moving in hopeful and thoughtful love. This doesn't mean that we cannot or that we should not speak out against injustice or oppression. But our hope is not found in that oppressive system being torn down. Because what happens is another oppressive system comes in place. It's just chatting with Neil before and what Karl Marx and Engels said, realized is that they had to use force to make people comply with the ideals of communism. Our hope is in the living God who will one day restore all things in this life, all broken and evil things. Instead of focusing on um, our attention on our oppressors and oppressive systems, it seems that Jesus' followers are invited first to draw attention to those who suffer most at the hands of these oppressive or unjust systems. As Proverbs 31 exhorts, Jesus' followers should be the first to speak up, not for themselves, but for those who cannot speak for themselves. Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9, 6 Yeah, say, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. You know, in light of our dominant capitalist system that we all live in, until a different or better system comes up, perhaps the hope of thoughtful love might look like what some Jesus followers have called, quote, an economy of care or a theology of enough. This offers a helpful counterpoint to this unfettered capital growth that capitalism 
advocates for. These approaches acknowledge this temptation to cloak what was considered cheap or miserly or lacking generosity is what Christians often say, I'm being faithful with what God's given to me. We give the bare minimum and only when it's convenient or only when it looks good to give rather than making a plan to allocate a percentage of our income to give and increasing that over time. Do you sit down and make a plan and review how much you give as a percentage of your income? You know, many of us find our incomes growing through our careers. And we can choose to limit our expenses by not allowing unnecessary lifestyle creep that is always tempting. And perhaps we can instead prioritize generosity creep. Have you ever considered that? You know, if I had the opportunity to speak with a number of Jesus followers over the years, and it's always inspiring to see how God creatively and spirit, the Spirit of God leads them to give what God has given to them, and God always comes through. You know, earlier I introduced you to my great-grandfather, Du Jixin. He gave his life for the revolution against an abusive monarchy. So convinced was he about the cause that he lost his life to it at the age of 34 when a stray bullet killed him as he tried to mediate between two regional factions in the revolution. As he died, he left behind his family, including my grandmother, who was only three years old at the time. My grandma and her three siblings and even my mother had a tough life without my great-grandfather around for most of their lives. They survived only because of the generosity of Jews' friends who provided a home for them and supported them. You know, ultimately, in the story of Scripture, we hear of another man who gave his life for a worthy cause. And he too died in his 30s. He gives his life sacrificially out of a true, thoughtful love for others, for the world, for you, and for me. This man is one who models the, the hope of thoughtful love. And he models it perfectly. And his name is Jesus. And we find that in Jesus' life and ministry, he is not primarily concerned for overthrowing oppression, oppressive systems and empires, even though that was very much in the face of the people he was ministering to. But he was there to overthrow the oppression of selfish concern. This selfish concern traumatizes us to believe that only we can protect ourselves so we do things on our terms rather than on God's terms. This selfish concern prevents us from being able to receive God's love fully and to give truly thoughtful love to our neighbor. Only Jesus is the truly just one who makes all relationships right. We cannot place our hope in economic systems and neither can we place our hope in overthrowing unjust economic systems because Another one will simply take its place. Our only hope is found in a person who makes all things whole and new. May we follow Jesus faithfully, living generously and hopefully as he did. And with the Spirit's help, especially on Pentecost Sunday, knowing that we can't do it on ourselves. In doing so, may we find ourselves participating in God's renewal of the world, including economic systems that relieve poverty and suffering for the most vulnerable, speaking up for them, seeing them, 
And may we faithfully steward all that God entrusts to us in this life. Amen.